So several years ago, there was this experimental music producer named William Bazinski, and he gathered these samples, these clips of sounds, uh, samples from uh, like existing songs, field sounds, uh, all these things, and, and he made manual tape loops, um, which is ways that you can create really vast soundscapes with just, just little clips of, of kind of sonic data. And he, like a lot of good inventions, he, he actually stumbled and made a mistake into uh, a, a really profound discovery. He one day went away and left a tape machine on one of these loops, and they're pretty short loops. And when he came back uh, an hour or so later, he found this tape was starting to eat itself. Uh, it was starting to, to degrade and to disintegrate uh, on the reel, which most of you guys are too young, and I'm almost too young to remember that you could actually wear out cassette tapes, you know? Like, that, that was definitely a thing. Like, I, I think my dad did this to a Phil Collins But Seriously album, you know, which is really great, but uh, I, I don't think it would play if you still had it. My, my Vanilla Ice probably looked like that, too. But William Bazinski, as any good artist does when you make one of these amazing mistake discoveries, decided to, to use this technology. He, he, he used the technology, the technique that he found, this slowly disintegrating tape loop, and it slowly tapers off into nothing. This is, this, uh, he used this to record some new, really stark and strangely emotional music. It, it's almost like listening to a death happen. Like like breathing, stopping, and, and and these would be kind of forty minute to about an hour long processes that that he came up with. So some of you might find that really interesting. Probably a lot of you find that like really like unlistenable, uh, incoherent, or unintelligible, like a waste of time. You'd probably be right, generally, for that sort of thing. I don't typically have a patience for that sort of like abstract, ambient music. But then, September 11th, 2001 happened. And Bozinski was living in New York City, and he went up onto his rooftop of his loft in New York City, and he just mounted a camera, a video camera, and he took hours of footage of the smoldering wreckage of those World Trade Towers. And then on September 12th, he projected those images of the smoldering World Trade Centers and set that, those disintegrating loops as the soundtrack to those images. And it made sense. That unintelligible noise became a lament. <laughs> it became a prayer a funeral dirge, an expression of terror, even a longing towards hope, and it did all these things at the same time. When those two mediums, the, that media found each other, there emerged a new meaning, kind of a powerful third thing, a third effect was born, greater than either of the, the sounds or the images alone. So earlier in the week, I, 
I met with a local photographer named Justin Cook, and it's his photography that's on those cards uh, and, and will be for the rest of our land, different images for each chapter. And I was, I had approached him about lending these images and I remembered some of them because he used to be a staff photographer for the Independent and he's done some work in things like the New York Times and I remembered these images. The one on your cards is in like the table of contents to the Indie Week, <laughs> which is so like inappropriate. Um, and when I asked him about that image, he said, he said, yeah, I remember that's one of my favorite images as he was doing work with the Religious Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham and they had a meeting and he went over to Shepherd's House UMC and, and came in the door and he wasn't there to shoot, he was just there for a meeting and, and he, he came upon this closet with all these piled up crosses from a mo memorial for unsolved murders in Durham and he was standing next to one of the one of the mothers of someone who had been killed in Durham, and and she looked at it and and basically said, "Don't look away from that. <laughs> That's exactly what it feels like. <laughs> that you just get swept up and put into a closet with your mourning and with your grief and with everything that's been behind you." So I, I was talking to Justin about maybe putting some of these powerful and and just deeply distressing and sorrowful images next to this lamentation text because it, maybe those pictures are just brutal enough for some of these words. And, and I was trying to like pitch the, the, the project to him, right? And, and uh, struggling to figure out like how this would work, what the goals would be, because uh, it seemed like something powerful and useful for our, our individual and our corporate scripture life together and and, and he, he told me and, and he told me this like he just kind of said it and like shrugged because he's a professional you know photojournalist and it's definitely a thing and I'm not and, and and I don't know these things but he's like oh yeah that's the you're hoping for the third effect that happens when you put a text with an image and you don't caption it very well because if you caption it you kind of kill it you just let those things do their work on you. And, and, and I was like, yes, that's, that's actually exactly it. And that's actually exactly uh, my hope for, for this season, but for, for the way we read scripture together um, anytime, is that we, we're, we're constantly reading and, and sometimes complimenting, sometimes juxtaposing God's word on the page before us and then we lift our heads up and we look around and we see these images of our neighbors and our friends and the places that we frequent and our, the places we're called to and, and we see them play off of one another and, and somehow we step into that third effect. Something, something that becomes greater and more imaginative, it, it leaps this gap uh, in the way we live our lives with God. I hope these prayer cards and some of the other resources um, do that and help you towards that this season, the, developing this kind of this intimacy with God, a language for lament, not just your own lament, but lament of others, lament for our city, and also a, a kind of a journey towards hope. If, if Lent's anything, it's a journey towards the hope of the resurrection. So 
most of you probably don't know a whole lot about lamentations because I confess I didn't either. Um, a little context to help you in your journey. Lamentations, it, whenever it was written, it, it details uh, this time period in 6th century uh, BC time when Babylon defeated Egypt and seized control of Jerusalem. If you can imagine that sort of turmoil as, as, as occupation gets switched over and, and, and the, the Jewish people and, and the occupants of Jerusalem are kind of hanging in the balance here. And they finally, when this gets settled and the, the dust literally settles from all this fighting, Babylon uh, takes over control and they set up kind of a puppet king to, to keep everything okay. This is a recurring activity. We, we find Rome doing this in Jesus' time. You always set up a puppet king and they, they exile, they extricate, uh, they export kind of the talented 10th of Jerusalem to Babylon so that they get the best out of the people. The rest can be slaves. Many people think that Jeremiah wrote this book because it sounds an awful lot like Jeremiah, both in what he's describing and how he's doing it. Jeremiah um, is known as the weeping prophet, and you can see why. It, Jeremiah 9.21 details this time when Jerusalem is falling, and it says, quote, death has come up to our windows. <laughs> It seems like Lamentations then deals with the aftermath of that. And it does, it does this in a really interesting way. And this is, this is subtle, and you might not see it. And I don't claim to be a Hebrew scholar, but if, if you kick this stuff around and, and you get good resources, you can kind of start to see some of the thing, these things. There doesn't seem a whole lot of coherence when you're, when you're hearing this or when you're reading this for yourself. When Lauren and Sarah and Marcus were reading it, it just seemed like a whole lot of mess happening. <laughs> They're just like bouncing back and forth, uh, a whole lot of distress and grief. And almost like this narrative voice in Lamentations almost feels like when they put, if you've ever watched a news report and they put a camera in the victim of, of a crime's face, like at the scene of the crime way too soon, and, and there's just like this incoherent grief happening in real time. That's almost what Lamentations feels like. But despite all of this chaos that's happening in this text, underneath it there's this form and there's this structure that's holding it all together. It's, a, it's amazing. Some, some of this is really lost on our translations, but each chapter is kind of this carefully curated poem that's happening. Like that, what we read today goes through the entire Hebrew alphabet. It's, it's like, an, like a kid's acrostic where, where you write the letters and then the first word of each uh, phrase has that as the start of it. Or, or maybe like an alphabetic. Um, and, and the form varies a little from chapter to chapter and it does that for reasons and we'll talk about that. But uh, it's amazing because with all the, the chaos that's happening, all the swirl of grief that's happening above the surface, underlying is this, this form, this skeleton that's holding it all together and kind of containing it, lest it just totally takes over. 
So that those are a couple notes just as, as you start to read um, and, and really get into this text. I'll tell you, I feel like I, I need to do a little introduction for our liturgical season together because I don't, I don't assume that this is natural to everyone. I don't assume that we've, we've all grown up with this sort of thing. I, I can tell you, I grew up in a really highly liturgical uh, church tradition that observed the Christian calendar. And if that's intimidating to you, or if maybe you grew up in a tradition that was very counter to that sort of thing, this is just how, how we tell time, <laughs> how we say what time it is, how we get into rhythms, and also, in some ways, how we express what's most important to us. Think about, th- think about um, if, if school, at least in this season of your life, is one of the most important things in your life, you're going to organize your whole year around the semesters and around breaks and around postal holidays that you get off. And probably around exam week, you would probably not dare double book exam week uh, you're on an academic calendar because you are in academics, right? Or I, I think of, uh, there's this old-time uh, Hall of Fame baseball player, Rogers Hornsby, and he has this quote. They asked him how he, I mean, they didn't say, how do you order time, Rogers Hornsby, um, but they, they asked him about how he tells time, and he says, people ask me what I do in the winter when there's no baseball. I'll tell you what I do. I stare out the window and wait for spring. So you can see his life is ordered around baseball time, which takes up most of the year, actually. So in this, this way of ordering time is not really new for God's people in the church because God's people Israel have been ordering time like this for a long time around, around feasts and festivals, um, on a yearly basis that recur and they retell and they relive and they re-embody God's story over and over. Things like Passover, when they celebrate God's deliverance out of exile, or Pentecost, or Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, where, where you go into exile, but, but God takes care of you there. This develops a rhythm in an identity in God's people, and, and it allows uh, the Jewish people to have their identity even in a far-off land, even when Babylon uh, is at their doorstep and is occupying their land. The way they order time helps make them a people. Similarly, Christians, and this is not strictly a Western phenomenon, this is the world around, set their clocks by an annual rhythm that starts in Advent. And that's an amazing note right there, that we kind of start at the end of the year, <laughs> is our start. We, start. we start by waiting. We start by waiting in hope. And then it continues through Christmastide and Epiphany, where we celebrate God's arrival, God showing up. And then into this Lenten season of repentance that we're approaching towards the celebration of God's spirit raising Jesus from the dead. And then 
then we celebrate the ascension where Jesus rules at the right hand of the Father and prays for us even now. And then on towards Pentecost where God's spirit floods this new resurrection movement that's happening. And then we hit a green patch of the story, this ordinary time. And then we start it over again. Like, there's so much beauty and richness in that. Even, even tonight we'll burn last year's palms that, that we, we kind of enact and, and, uh, and rehearse this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, even as they, the people that were welcoming him really didn't have any idea what they were saying because they'd kill him about a week later. But then we turn those palms of, of royal celebration into the very dust of, uh, of the start of this season. And then we'll have more palms, and then we'll have more ashes. It's this beautiful richness. I remember growing up, Advent was really easy in some ways. Um, you weren't going to miss it because as a kid, you knew Christmas was coming. And you knew Thanksgiving was, was awesome, but then Christmas was going to come, right? And then even like commercially, like the season of preparation for Christmas, mostly represented by your ability to buy Christmas stuff, started creeping, and it would creep, and it would creep up to Halloween, and then it would start to creep before Halloween. So you knew Christmas was coming. Advent was almost redundant if you were just looking at it to get ready for Christmas, right? The greatest challenge for Advent is like putting the reins on Advent, <laughs> slowing down and waiting, this is like Tom Petty stuff. The waiting is the hardest part, right? Like that is, that's Advent in a nutshell. If Advent needs rains, though, like I think a season like Lent that we're heading into, it, 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 needs, it needs a goad. It needs, it, it needs, you know, for us to be spurred and prodded towards entering into the season. Lest we don't get uh, caught off guard. But also I think, we're not going to do this sort of thing by ourselves. Like that's another great thing about the calendar is like it, it you can literally set a calendar to it that it's going to come up and you're going to have to do these things because left to, to our own devices we we won't seek humility. We won't seek repentance. I think one misconception a lot of people have about Lent is that it's primarily about giving up something. And, and this is some people's practice, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. One year, I worked at a coffee shop, and I gave up coffee. Um, that makes me not want to give up anything. My dad um, annually gives up giving up something. Uh, but I think, I think more at its core, Lent has always been more about taking up than giving up. Taking up in reinvesting in the way of Jesus, taking up the cross and following him so that by the time we get to Holy Week, when Jesus was betrayed and sentenced and suffered and died and then was buried and then raised from the dead, we're not caught off guard then. I think it's more important that we get caught off guard now than we get caught off guard then. We repent because left up to us, we, we just skip right through the death part and go straight to the eternal life part. Um, 
I think if left to us, we'd craft whole systems and theologies around the cross of Jesus' death that largely ignore like the way he got to the cross, the things he, he taught, the things he, he, he took on, the healing that he promoted that, that disturbed and disrupted the systems of sin and death that were operating in his time. We, we wouldn't know how to fit his life into the puzzle if we don't walk with him. We'd have Easter, but no Lent or Good Friday. <laughs> Lent helps us to remember well so that we don't forget these things. That's why Lent starts with one of the most brutal and brutally honest thing any organization, religious or non, can say about you. <laughs> On Ash Wednesday, just a few days from now, you'll get a cross of ashes smeared right between your eyes so that you can't miss it. And someone will speak over, to, over you, remember that you are dust. In short, you are going to die, <laughs> is what is being said at the beginning of Lent. But Lent reconfigures that phrase. There's, there's kind of this third effect that's happening with these mediums. Because those words, rather than becoming a death sentence, in their truth and their brutality, they pair up against both the suffering that we encounter and the amazing glimpses of beauty and form and hope that we see on a daily basis. And they call for something new, something excessive of that. Remember that your dust connects us vitally to our own suffering and also to the wreckage and suffering of others around us. Remember that your dust calls us to mourn. We don't like to mourn. <laughs> that's, something, that's something we don't do well and we'd rather get beyond. Not to fix, but just to sit a while and grieve well. I think that's what lamentations can help us with. There's not a whole lot of solutions in lamentations. Jeremiah might have resonated with what William Bozinski said years after the disintegration loops and he was on a panel. And he said, this is his quote, he goes, I thought I had been unwittingly commissioned to do the soundtrack for the end of the world. Is amounts to his grief on display. Lamentations is at very least the soundtrack to the end of God's people's victorious hopes. With Jerusalem goes everything that God has said he'd do. Their city lay in wreckage. As Kathleen O'Connor puts it, laments are the prayers of the discontented, the disturbed, and the distraught. And this is a language that we need to learn. They're not well-crafted. They're not tidily formed. They blame God. You have permission to blame God. They complain to God. They fall face down before God. They even often express the devastating feeling that God has abandoned them. Virtually nothing is off the table or out of bounds when it comes to lament. Lament creates an alchemy of grief, mourning, and despair that somehow turns towards an embrace of life. Life from dust and hope from wreckage. I think we've all had 
these things to despair over, to grieve, to mourn. We get turned down for a job that we thought we were a slam dunk for. And often, instead of grieving that, we just move on. <laughs> or we wait years for a steady place to call home. <laughs> but we, f- we fail to grieve how much that hurts. Or so, some, of, some of the ladies even in this room have had another month's period come when all they wanted to do was have a baby. And it comes again. And it's devastating and you don't mourn that. Or a cousin that was so close to you that everyone always mistakes him for you died and you don't know how to, how to work that. So you don't grieve it because grieving it would, would put it too close to you. Or something that you've given so much blood, sweat, and tears to just fails. No one seems to get it. No one seems to, to take your side. Or even just looking around town, another young black man loses his life on the streets of our community. That we are dust gives us permission to cry out, to grieve well. My friend Mandy Smith says, lament is beating on God's chest and trusting he's not going anywhere. That's... That's what, we're, that's what we're going for in this season. Remember that you are dust also calls us to repent, to forget ourselves on purpose, or to at least dispense with the idea that any of this depends on us or revolves around us. That means that you can take a breath and be free because it doesn't depend on you and it doesn't revolve around you. And if you step out of the equation, it'll still go on. In the Bible, um, in the Hebrew Bible, repentance is this word shuv, which means that you're going the wrong way and you just need to turn. You need to turn around. You need to not go not go the wrong direction or the wrong way, but you also need to stop setting up the kind of scaffolding in your lives to support this, this way of self-reliance and this, this way of walking in fear. In the New Testament, in, in Greek, repentance is this word metanoia, which means to change your mind. That's it, maybe even a little more intimidating. <laughs> Turning around, we all have the muscle capability to do that. Changing your mind rarely happens right away. It's also rarely the product of just getting good info or getting the facts right. Changing your mind, this sort of metanoia, repentance, is entering into a new reality, a new paradigm, entering into a new economy, a new ecology of abundance and peace and grace. This is that Luke 15 parable of the prodigal son. This is running back into the father's arms and back into his family's household to be free. He came, the the word says, he came to himself and turned and, and went back to his father. And finally, remember that you are dust it enables us to join in in an act 
God's renewal. That we are dust. That that's where we came from and that's where we're headed. Seems pretty bleak, but it's good news. Because God brings amazing things out of dust. When God chooses to breathe into dust, new life emerges. And not just any life, life made in God's own image. We want to be in the dust business. <laughs> That's exactly where we want to be. It's good news. It's good news because Jesus, whom the prophet Isaiah described as a suffering servant, a man well acquainted with sorrow, has borne all of the world's suffering. He cried out on Calvary's cross those words from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are on Jesus' lips because he said them, then he put a definitive end to any reality of our own God-forsakenness. Because he experienced that we don't have to. So now as Peter has the as Peter in 1 Peter instructs, we can cast all of our anxieties, all of our grief, all of our complaints on Jesus because he cares for us. It's good news because Jesus proclaims, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's like at an arm's reach. And then Jesus identified with us enough to enter into the Jordan waters, those waters of repentance, to be baptized. If Jesus can be baptized, any of us can repent. Something about that action tells me that we not only get included in Jesus' death, that watery death, but also in Jesus' life, in Jesus' resurrected life. This is what Paul's saying to his letter to Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith, by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. And all of this is good news because we get to join in as God renews, as God restores, as God renovates the lives and the places we find ourselves, like starting with our life starting with the place under our feet, even as we grieve, even as we hope, even as we wait. In a moment, we'll gather around this table, and it's a, an amazing kind of thin place for this sort of lament uh, kind of posture. Because it's at this table that we, that we remember Jesus uh, eats with his disciples and he says, remember, uh, it, it was a meal of remembrance um, that they were eating, a meal of Passover deliverance. But it was also a meal in which they looked forward, do this in remembrance of me, but also do this until I come again. So it's anticipating. So we're stuck in, the, in that middle place. Where we, where, we, where we remember well and we repent, but we also join in God's renewal. Uh, uh, in a second, we'll, we'll gather around the table, but before that, we'll spend a few moments um, in confession, in silence, in reflection, and asking God's Spirit to speak to us and to meet us in these words.
Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that they're so heavy that it somehow lightens us. Uh, even as we take these words and, and ask you to, to use them to help us voice our own fears and grief. As we ask you to help us suffer with and empathize um, alongside our brothers and sisters who are hurting. We thank you for this season of preparation. And, and Lord, prepare our hearts to meet you on this way. Prepare our hearts to meet you on the way to the cross. And work in us this, this imaginative new thing, this third effect that, that breathes life into this text and, and breathes life into our regular everyday experiences and, and makes something new. Lord, renew us by your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.